sitting at the feet of Jesus as we go through the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, we've been doing this. This is probably, what, week eight or week nine, um, in which we explore Jesus's most well-known teaching. This is two chapters in and what, where Jesus explores and unpacks what the kingdom of God is like and what life in his kingdom is. And over the last five weeks or so, we've been sitting in kind of a mini-series of sorts, going through six of Jesus's antithetical statements. These are statements that begin, you have heard it said, but I say to you. One week we covered Jesus's thoughts on anger and how the people of God are to not have a seething contempt for their fellow neighbor, for their fellow human. We spoke and we thought about the second look or this look of sexual objectification that turns our neighbor injected on object of desire reducing them. Then we reflected on divorce and really how Jesus confronts an easy divorce culture, calling for us to be aware of the weaponization that it has kind of taken on and in protection of marginalized women. And then last week, we reflected on what it means to be a truth-telling people resisting the manipulation of others with half-truths and image management. And uh, as I've been talking to people, that one hit pretty close to home. And uh, just buckle up. Jesus is going to hit close to home again because, or deep of us talking about revenge and violence. So nothing too controversial or deep about that. As we prepare to dive in, three reminders that you've heard from us several times. The Sermon on the Mount is not an isolated speech. This is to say that Jesus' life personifies what his speech is all about. The whole Sermon on the Mount is Christ describing what life in his kingdom looks like. So it's not just a collection of moral, ethical teachings, but it really is a vision cast for this is what the kingdom of God is. And then finally, and potentially most important for today, creativity. Sermon is a practice in imagination. It's a practice in creativity. It's a practice in hearing what Jesus is saying, sensing the heartbeat and the love behind it, and using our creativity and listening to the voice of the Spirit to apply it to the moment we find ourselves in. Jesus opens this teaching in particular with what might be a familiar phrase for most of us. You've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. In Latin, this is the lex talionis, or the law of retribution. And it's spoken of several times throughout the Torah. In Exodus 21, Moses writes, But if hand for hand, a serious injury, you are to take life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. He's pretty all-inclusive. Then in Leviticus 24, Moses also writes, Any, anyone who injures their neighbor is to be injured in the same manner. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. The one who has inflicted the injury must suffer the same. And then Deuteronomy, Jesus, Moses opens, says, show no mercy. 
Show no pity. Life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. And while that sounds pretty brutal to our ears and our sensibility, curbs violence. This legal code is actually really good in the sense that it curbs violence. It is to say there was a, confront, a confrontation of injustice, but that confrontation had its own end. It was to limit revenge and retribution, and it was a form of equality and fairness in a broken world. It is egalitarian in the sense that it is applied equally to all, regardless of gender, race, economic status, or age, and it was good for humanity, for justice or injustice was being dealt with. And in many ways, our laws still function around the lex tali, but the, we still function with this eye for eye, tooth for tooth mantra. But the problem of this philosophy of an eye for an eye is evident with, within every family that has siblings. So I have three younger brothers, so four boys, and I have never in my entire life experienced a proportionate response. I have never experienced an eye for an eye because it's an eye for an eye plus some. One punch, quick, one punch in the arm quickly becomes three punches to the face. And one stolen toy quickly becomes a whole war of who can steal whose stuff more. And one sly insult becomes an all-out yelling match, which tinge came a brawl. It's hum our human nature to want revenge. So the problem with the eye for an eye is not its justice, but our nature. It's typically and almost never applied justly. Because if we're all honest with ourselves, revenge feels pretty good. That sly comment or that snobby email, it's really nice to kind of get one in there to just return the favor. And humans are rarely interested in getting even. We're more interested in the revenge cycle of things. And I call this the John Wick syndrome. He killed my dog, so I everyone. That is the human condition of us just trying to get back at one another. In the adventures of Huckleberry Finn, Huck asks Buck, what is a feud? And this is the answer. Well, a feud is this way. I thought about doing the accent, but I won't. Well, a feud is this way. A man has a quarrel with another man and kills him. Then that other man's brother kills him, and the other brothers on both sides go for one another. Then the cousins chip in, and by and by, everyone is killed off, and there ain't no more feud. It's kind of slow, and it takes a long time. <laughs> That's a, that is a short description of human history. It is a cycle, there's someone, in which someone kills my someone, and I go after their someone, and we keep trading blows until there's nothing left. The conflict isn't solved. Peace isn't resolved. All we've got is destruction on both sides. I call this the cycle of violence. We as humans are very used to fighting fire with fire or violence with more violence. Nothing is done to end the conflict or much less achieve peace. If anything, our actions just continue to fuel the conflict. And despite how evolved and loving we all claim to be, in our, in, our world is still in the midst of this cycle of violence. Even in our enlightenment, 
We have done very little to release our grip on the sword or to quench our thirst for for revenge. And enter this carpenter turned prophet named Jesus who comes to flip our world upside down and introduce us to another way. The Jesus we read of in scripture, the one giving us this teaching, was not, uh, he, was, he was very familiar with a world of violence. So when we read the scripture, there's kind of a, there's about a 300 year gap between the end of the Old Testament and the New Testament. It was full, which might lead you to think nothing happened, but that couldn't be any further from the truth. It was full of bloody revolutions and conflict. 200 years before Jesus, the Israelites were under Greek rule, and at one point, the Greeks outlawed the practicing of Judaism. And so a man by the name of Judas the Maccabee, or Judas the Hammer, rose up. He encouraged his um, neighbors to do the same, and they picked up swords. And after about a two-week period, thousands were slaughtered, but they had their independence and their freedom. But quickly, the Maccabees, the leaders of this revolution, turned from very easily into tyrants. For the ways of war are rarely forgotten very easily. And so quickly, the people who would be called their messiahs, for at this time, the Israelite people thought the Maccabees were the Messiah and that the regime that they were bringing was the kingdom of God, but that Messiah... And that kingdom was anything but. And so the war heroes quickly become the oppressors. And within 80 years, a new, bigger military comes along and crushes them. And thus the Israelites are again under the occupation of a foreign government, this time called the Steps into. And so when Jesus, the incarnation of God, steps into the scene and start speaking of the kingdom of God, the Israelites and those who would hear him begin sharpening their swords. They begin gathering up arms because they hear the language and the only thing that they can think of is this is going to be a kingdom that is birthed from blood and for trading blows with our enemy. This is going to be a kingdom that is advanced through military might. In Matthew 26, Peter, what does Peter do whenever Jesus is about to be arrested? He swings out his sword. Even Jesus' closest disciples, it was going to be a kingdom forged in death and in conflict. In Matthew 27, the prisoner Barabbas was likely one of these violent messiahs, one of these Maccabees. And so in this little picture of Jesus's arrest and betrayal and his trial, you see this picture of two different messiahs and two different kingdoms on display. You have the kingdom of violent revolution and you have the kingdom of revolutionary enemy love represented in Jesus. It is in this that Jesus steps in for his kingdom is not advanced through military, through the brains or the slaughtering of the enemy, it is advanced through the breaking of the cycle of violence and enemy love. And so as we get to our passage, Jesus begins to unpack his way of life by addressing the old way, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But similar to Jesus's words on divorce, 
The eye for an eye is a concession and not Jesus's or God's intention. Moses enacted this eye for an eye philosophy because of our hard hearts. Violence and divorce were never a part of God's design for his world. Take action, people. Rather, Jesus desires for his followers to take action that breaks this cycle of violence and creates opportunities for those who are our enemy to be transformed. So, Jesus offers his thoughts. You have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. Now, when we hear, do not resist the one who is evil, this is a somewhat misleading translation because it assumes inaction. Like whenever we hear that, we assume, okay, by do not resist, that means kind of roll over and take it. Not the act, but rather to follow Jesus is to step into action, just not the actions that everyone expects. For whenever we enter into conflict, when conflict happens, there's kind of a binary that human nature has set up. We all know it, fight or flight, swing back or take off. And Jesus offers us this surprising logic that, well, no, there's actually a lot of other options to fight or flight. When you are confronted, your options aren't trade blows with a person or roll over and take whatever action they want to do with you. But rather, there is an infinite number of options for a time to be taken. And in particular, the follower of Jesus is to prioritize loving the person in front of them, even when that person considers you enemy. This is a baffling, uncomfortable way of living. And yet, it's the way that Jesus invites us into. Instead of opting for the binary of fight or flight, Jesus constantly offers us what I would call a third way. In moments where we think, okay, these are my only two options, Jesus is inspiring us to think creatively, imaginatively, now, here's the story of the woman caught in adultery, where these Jewish leaders drag this woman to the center, and they say, Jesus, what do we do with her? There were, in theory, just two options. He, the first option was to follow the Mosaic Code, which would have included stoning the woman and killing her. The problem with that option was that it was illegal under Roman occupation. The other option would be don't kill her, which would be a violation of the Mosaic Code and obeying the Roman law. So in many ways, Jesus is caught in this moment of seemingly two options. And yet, what does Jesus do? He does the most surprising, bizarre, odd you think of. He bends down and he begins to draw on the dirt. It's odd. It's weird. It's uncomfortable. What he did and what he drew, I have no idea but it was enough to catch the crowd off guard. And then when he spoke, he turns the fury of the crowd against itself. And he says, whoever is without sin, cast the first stone. It was a creative, imaginative third way to confront the moment. He didn't buy into there are only two options, fight or flight. There are only two options, kill her or disobey he came up with a creative third way. 
situation we find ourselves in, there are a multitude of other actions available to us other than responding blow for blow or just simply running. Scott McKnight writes on this passage and says, A person shaped by the Jesus Creed, which is love of God and love of neighbor, responds to injustice not with retaliation and vengeance, but with grace, compassion, and abundant mercy in such a way that it reverses injustice. To round out his thoughts on this, Jesus offers us four illustrations of the third way. First one being physical violence. Uh, Justin slaps you on the right cheek. Turn to him the other also. Uh, Justin, can you join me up here? I did not prep Justin for this. So Jesus is in an honor-shame society, and (laughs) I'm not going to hit Justin. I'm not going to hit Justin. I want to use him as an illustration to help you understand. So he's in an honor, Jesus is in an honor-shame society, and he's assuming the attacker, the one who is swinging, is right-handed. And so if I'm the perpetrator in this, so I'm the evil one, you're the good guy. It makes sense. So if, if I'm the perpetrator, that my slapping him on, on the right side is a backhanded swing, that is designed to dehumanize and humiliate him as much as humanly possible. This was as insulting as it got. And Jesus' creative response is not run away. It's not swing again. It's actually take another hit. And so for me to slap him right, he has to square his face again, meet me in the eye, and invite the second slap. There is something about that demands that your dignity be acknowledged and that your perpetrator recognize that what the person who is you is again dehumanizing you. It's a shaming of the person who is violating your dignity. It's to stare them in the eye and offer your other cheek as opposed to taking up a fist and punching. You can sit down. Thanks, Justin. It is a creative, difficult calling to acknowledge that the person in front of you is failing and they're doing something evil, but you offer your body as an object lesson for them. He goes on to offer a lesson in legal violence. If in quick back, sue you and take your tunic, let them have your cloak as well. Quick backstory. Typically, um, most Israelites had two garments, their tunic and their coat. It was illegal for anybody to take your coat. It was the outer garment. But their tunic was kind of this long garb that, um, for lack of better term, was also their underwear. So it wasn't necessarily what people wanted, but if they were suing you for your tunic, that meant that they were suing you for everything that you were worth. That they were not only trying to get what was theirs, but they were trying to ruin you. Because they didn't want your tunic for anything other than this is once in you. So it being illegal that they couldn't take your coat, Jesus is once again offering this illustration in really bringing your humanity to the forefront and shaming the person who would go to such lengths to be retributive and vengeful. 
And it is exactly what it sounds like if someone were to sue you for your tunic, offering your coat as well would leave you stark naked in the middle of a courtroom. And that was not a normal thing in Jesus' culture. That is as bizarre in his culture as it is in our own. And what Jesus is offering is he's saying, put your body in the place of showing exposed, craved their desires were. Put yourself in this place to expose, no pun intended, the evil and the vitriol that they are acting with. You become an object lesson to show that there is a different way for us to interact with the world. He then goes on to talk about political violence. In the day, in the moment Jesus is in, his people are an oppressed people under the regime of the Roman government. And so this particular command, and if anyone forces you to go with him one mile, go with him two miles, spoke specifically of Roman soldiers. So equipment lawful for a Roman soldier to grab a citizen and say, hey, you're carrying my equipment for me for a mile. That was legal. It was illegal for them to go or force you to go a second mile. And Jesus's very difficult command is actually take the person's gear and go a second mile. Demonstrate that you see beyond the flag and the empire that they represent and you see a person who is needing to be loved and cared for and treated with dignity. You go beyond what is necessary to demonstrate your love and value for the one who would not for the enemy. The kingdom of Jesus and following his way is not for the faint of heart. This is not a love that Hallmark movies represents very well. This is a love that is willing to put your own body on the line to demonstrate that someone else is worthy of your affection. They're worthy of God's designation of a child of his. The final is financial violence. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. In this one, there's kind of a couple of competing theories. The first one might be that I have lended to someone money. You have lent someone money and um, it's time to pay up. Jesus is saying, do not take the normal actions of a bookie or someone who's doing a shakedown and go after your money. That in the kingdom of God, money is not all, not all that valuable, valuable, but actually it's the person who you've lent to that needs to be valued, cared for. The other kind of idea is that it's just talking about someone who comes and is in need of finances, is in need of cash. Jesus is saying, do not refuse this person, recognizing that there is examples worth in the person in front of you. In all of these examples, Jesus kind of covers the multitude of human experiences to say that in every area of life, there are opportunities for my creative third way to love people that we go beyond the binaries of fight and flight. We move beyond the urge to take revenge or to swing first, but rather we demonstrate and bear witness to a new type of kingdom by living in radical dissonance with everything around us. 
Can you imagine a people who are unwilling to swing after they to Can you imagine a people who are willing to put their body on the line to demonstrate that God so loved? Can you imagine a people who refuse to see enemies but only see neighbors? Can you imagine a people of generosity whose concern is more for the welfare of their neighbor than getting the nickel back that they think they deserve? Can you imagine a people who live in radical discontinuity with the cycle of violence? Jesus' urge and call and his beckoning is for us to embrace a third way. Now, most of us don't live in fear of violence being perpetrated against us every day. So I want to acknowledge that that is not a normal experience. We might have some situations and some moments that are scary, but for the most part, this is an application to all the moments of conflict in our life. The moments in which we have the option, how am I going to respond to this insult? How am I going to respond to to this, this attack and this affront to my own dignity? Will we choose the third way. And while we do not face violence on a daily basis, it's important for us to contemplate and consider how we will confront violence when the possibility arises. Uh, Not too long ago, Cassie and I lived in Springfield, and uh, I had recently committed to this practicing of the third way, and there was a domestic dispute kind of outside of our window that turned violent, and, um, you know, being a follower of Christ, we felt compelled to, you know, step in because it was domestic abuse, and, um, you know, in kind of running down the stairs, the thought goes, what do I do if he swings? I going to, what am I going to do if he pulls something? What am I going to do? And it's Jesus' radical third way that calls us to be creative in our responses to these moments of conflict. I don't have all the answers to all the scenarios that are going through your head. Um, And I don't think I'm supposed to. I think that is the role of the Spirit and our trust that says when we get into those moments, we trust that there is a God that's creative enough to help us demonstrate what love looks like even as we are under attack. That it is in that moment of his goodness that God's kingdom bursts forth and we bear witness to his goodness. This is not pragmatic in the sense that we are trying to win these battles. This is not a best conflict resolution seminar. This is our ultimate goal is to bear witness to God's love and to bear witness to his kingdom. So as followers of Jesus, we are to see confrontation and conflict as an opportunity to reveal his love. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, probably the best example of what this looks like in Nazi Germany, taking this commitment all the way to being executed, writes, our voluntary renunciation of counterviolence confirms and proclaims our unconditional allegiance to Jesus as his followers, our freedom, our detachment from our own egos, 
And it is only in the exclusivity of this adherence that evil can be overcome. Notice that as Jesus walks through and he describes our opponent, that each of these scenarios are centered on the person in front of us. They're centered on the one that would be called evil, and he offers us the opportunity, will you show your enemy love? Jesus' most radical command is what will you do when you're confronted by an enemy? As I seek to follow closely to Jesus as possibly as I can, I've come to believe that his teachings on violence and revenge are not something to be taken lightly. That he means for his followers to break with the traditions of violence and to embrace a new way of life. Therefore, I and Cassie have come to some of the following conclusions. And as we've said many times before, this is a space for discussion and conversation. And so just because these are our conclusions doesn't necessarily mean they have a believer. My conclusions are I cannot kill an unbeliever for it is our calling to preach the gospel of the kingdom to those who are yet to believe. I cannot kill a fellow believer because it is in our love for one another that the world will know God. I cannot participate in the activities of the state that violate or conflict with the way of the kingdom of God. I am a follower of a Messiah who said, pick up your cross and follow, and picked up his cross and was executed by his government. I am called to loving action in all situations on behalf of both the victim and the perpetrator. Life. I do not own a gun, nor will I take actions that intentionally put another's life in risk. I give up any right to vindictive, retributive, vengeful, or violent actions, for my calling above all else is love. These are my convictions based on the teachings of Jesus and the life of Jesus. But once again, we are a community that recognizes that we can maintain relationships without complete agreement. And there are many really smart people who have differing opinions on this subject. But my goal in this is to begin the conversation. Because without the preparation and the thoughtfulness of this, we will constantly fall into the same cycle. We will constantly be in the place of revenge, revenge, violence for violence, attack for attack. We have to prepare our hearts to listen to the Spirit. All that said, there are still a host of questions that still remain unanswered. What can you do in protection of the innocent? What about non-combatant military roles? Is any physicality violence? What about violent sports? What about violent movies? What about the violence in the Old Testament? Is any warfare justifiable for the Christian? Should a Christian hold a government to the same value system? Give out Hitler. <laughs> like, anytime I bring this up, it inevitably gets to, well, what about Hitler? Like, as if Hitler's the trump card for every ethical debate. It always gets to that place. I have some answers to some of these questions, but I don't have time to delve into all of them. But there are a few ways we can begin to jump into these questions. And at this time, I'll ask the worship team to join me as we kind of round this out. First, remember Jesus' announcement from chapter 4. Repent, 
for the kingdom is arriving. And this repent is not simply a sorrow rethinking for moral inaction or moral action, but a process of rethinking, of evaluating the ideas that we've held for so long and allow Jesus and his kingdom to begin reshaping those things. So maybe you've come to some similar conclusions I have. Maybe you haven't. Maybe you won't. But I think it's important for us to all come to a place of honest rethinking. Honest rethinking is in the sense of going, here's what I think, but I'm going to go down the path of discovery. So first remember, repent for the kingdom is arriving. Second, Jesus was fully aware of violence in the Old Testament. He called it his scripture. He still uh, gave this teaching, and he still chose death on a cross. There's some kind of continuity there that I don't have the words for. There's some kind of continuity in the fact that the stories that Jesus grew up with were violent, messed up, and at times had brokenness and evil, and yet he still offers this teaching on how to love your enemy. I don't have a simple solution to that conflict. I don't have a simple solution to that tension. But just recognize that Jesus still read the Old Testament as scripture. And finally, as following through us, we are privileged to have his spirit speaking to us and acting through us. Trust that. May we foster a listening ear that picks up on the still, small voice even as we face violent conflict. May we be a people that have learned to hear the whispering of Jesus even in the midst of the screams of the crowd. May we be a people who hear the still, small voice in the recesses of our soul even as we face bodily harm. May we be a people who are trusting that he will give us creativity in the midst of conflict. And as we rethink our perspectives on retaliation and learn to listen to the Holy Spirit, I want to read this short essay that illustrates both. And I say essay because it's kind of long, but I promise if you stay with me, it's worth it. Uh, This is an essay by Jared McKenna called Mugged by Jesus. What a title, Mugged by Jesus. It describes Jared's experience as an 18-year-old art student being confronted by a much larger man that demanded all of Jared's money. And in that moment, he could have fought or ran, but chose another way. So here's my invitation. As I prepare to read this, Jared, yourself to the place ready to hear what the Spirit might be saying to you. Jared writes, I joke about it now, but there was nothing funny at the time. If you've ever been mugged or held up or threatened violently, you know the shock can be numbing. What next flashed through my head, short-circuited my panic and crazy split-second plans of split or hit. The words of Jesus that Martin Luther King Jr. had been experimenting with, you have heard it said, eye for an eye, tooth for tooth, but I tell you. The flash of those words in my imagination felt like was related all over my head with a tangible sense of this is how God has related to me. For the first time in the situation, I felt grounded. I had already gotten my wallet out, so I reached in 
and gave him what I had, which was only $10. You'd think he had known better than to choose an art student as his victim. I'm still not sure why, but I didn't simply hand over the money. I stuck out my hand and said, hi, I'm Jared. To which he, with a surprise to match my own, he said, James. Surprised and confused, I said, no, Jared. Pause, responded, said, no, I'm James. There was an awkward pause. This was by far the weirdest passing of the peace I had ever been involved with. I noticed his arm. The bruising ran all along it, interrupted only by the scarring that rivaled a pincushion. James, James's arm was offered to me to contemplate the depth of his pain and all the desperate attempts to escape it. He couldn't have been more than a couple years older to, than me. The next thing that hit me was the stench like stale urine mixed with cigarettes. As we stood on the bridge suspended above the freeway, James launched into his light other than cut at a pace to rival the cars passing below. His words seemed to overtake each other then cut off. He said he was sorry to be doing this to me, but he was in a bad way. He'd been doing really well. He was on the program and getting off the stuff, but his mom had kicked him out again and he was back on the streets. I asked him to come home to my house and eat and have a shower and get a change of clothes. I tried to find a new place to stay, another awkward pause. Then through the middle of us, on the bridge darted a young woman in the same black tracksuit with a bag under her arm yelling, go, go, we gotta go. I grabbed James and I said, wait, before you go, the little in my backpack passed my art gear and textbook to reach in and grab the little New Testament I always carried with me. It's got my name and number in it if you ever change your mind about a place to stay. For the first time since I was staring at this big guy's fist, it got ugly again. James got right up in my face and he started yelling, what do I want a Bible for? I'm going to hell. His face contorted with anger that had an intensity that explained his arm. Without even thinking, I found myself saying, James, we're all going to hell. And that's why Jesus came. Now I know that statement rates low on the theological wow scale. Be embarrassingly high on the theological cringe factor, but it's what I said. What happened next, I think, was one of the weirdest experiences of my life. This big guy, who had only moments earlier was ready to beat me up, if not worse, just started crying. I'm not talking about one tear, sad movie crying. He burst out crying like a little kid does. Suddenly his pain was so visible in his anger and his scarred arms and his situation made sense. All of it seemed to burst like a floodgate at the news of God's love for him. Jesus didn't say anything more to me. He says later, he tried to stop the snot and tears. He grabbed the Bible and started running. A few paces later, he turned, looked me in the eye, waved the Bible and nodded. He kept running. I stood a long moment on the bridge, stunned, picked up my bag a bit dazed and continued along the overpass. As I neared the end of the bridge, I saw his female, jump, female accomplice jump into a already crowded sedan. She got in and yelled, I got a bag. James ran up, he got in the car and over the music, he yelled, I, I got a Bible. 
they piled in and drove off. I just kept walking. James taught me that there is nothing that shows the world what God is like throughout the than when we love our enemies. Despite the reality that throughout the New Testament, the cross is not only how God saves us, it is how we witness to that salvation. I am aware that enemy love still scandalizes many a fundamentalist and liberal alike. Who wants a savior who loves the enemies we want to kill? Who wants to witness to the God whose love falls like rain on the just and the unjust alike? Who wants a God who longs to heal those who have hurt us so that they hurt no more? to the Midtown Church Weekly Podcast. To find out more or to join a church gathering, check out our website at midtownkc.church.